Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Right, um, let's get started. My name is Duncan, Duncan Green. I'm Professor in Practice in the Department of International Development. I'm chairing tonight. Today's topic is COVID-19, corporatization and closing space, the triple threat to civil society in India. Very hot topic right now, both in India and globally. Uh, The impact of the pandemic on civil society, which was already under threat prior to the pandemic. And we've got two great speakers to um, to, uh, bring us up to speed on this. Our main speaker is Ingrid Shrinath, who is the founder director uh, of the Center for Social Impact and Philanthropy at Ashoka University, the first academic center in South Asia to focus on these issues. CSIP has produced path-breaking research on philanthropic flows, the impact of changes in foreign funding and of COVID-19, the nonprofit ecosystem and regulatory reform, besides pr- providing world-class capacity building programs for nonprofit leaders and young people starting their careers in the nonprofit CSO sector. And then to discuss her presentation, we have one of our own, David Lewis, who's Professor of Anthropology and Development in the Department of International Development at the LSE. He's written extensively on NGOs and civil society in Asia, including in Bangladesh and the Philippines. He has a growing interest in representations of developments in popular culture, including mission, fiction and film. Sorry, what am I talking about? Music, fiction and film and is a faculty advisory group member in the LSE South Asia Centre. So Ingrid is going to speak for about 45 minutes, um, and then we're going to have David for about 10 minutes. Without further ado, I'm going to pass over to Ingrid. Take it away. Thank you, Duncan. Um, And thank you, LSE DID, for having me today. Um, Today in India is what we celebrate as Constitution Day. It's the day that our Constituent Assembly, the Constituent Assembly of Free Independent India, adopted our constitution in 1949. It's therefore sort of doubly sad that earlier this week, the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, IDEA, rated India as the backsliding democracy with the most democratic violations during the pandemic. This was in its 2021 report on the global state of democracy. The violations they reported include harassment, arrests, and prosecution of human rights defenders, activists, journalists, students, academics, and others critical of the government or its policies. They also cited excessive use of force in the enforcement of COVID-19 regulations, harassment against Muslim minorities, internet obstructions and lockdowns, particularly in Kashmir. Sadly, again, this is not the only index on which India's democracy appears to be faltering. It echoes similar red flags in other global indices, indices of media freedom, indices of freedom of religion, of civil society space, and of internet freedom, among others. Right. Other things that happened this week, we heard our national security advisor, this is the highest ranking security official in India, describe civil society to new graduates at the police academy as the frontier of fourth generation warfare. He said, the new frontiers of war, what we call fourth generation warfare is civil society. War itself, he said, has ceased to become an effective instrument for achieving political or military objectives. They are too expensive and unaffordable. And so civil society is pressed into service to achieve those goals. 
Just one day previously, the highest ranking military official expressed satisfaction that citizens in Kashmir are now willing to lynch their fellow citizens if they suspect them of anti-national activity. How can killing a terrorist be a human rights violation, he asked. If there's a terrorist operating in your area, why should you not lynch him? In the same week, and this wasn't a particularly frenzied week by any stretch, Muslims have been prevented from praying in areas that are designated for their prayer. 50 Christian churches have been shut down in a state in central India. So that's just the week that just was. I think in some, what I'm trying to convey is that Indian democracy and the pillars that support it are being rapidly eroded. And I suppose the logical question to ask then is, where is the resistance to this apparently inexorable decline? The farmers movement scoring their victory with the rollback of those new laws after a year of protests and camping out on the borders of New Delhi uh, has had some success. But other movements and civil society more generally appear to have been successfully stifled. What I'm going to try to do today is outline the confluence of forces at play that leads us to this current situation. It's axiomatic almost to say that any aspiring autocrat, any at least one worth the label autocrat, must ensure the neutralization or at least the significant weakening of the key pillars of democracy, of the media, of the judiciary, and of civil society. He or she must also ensure the co-option of big business. In India, the seeds of that process were sown over four decades ago during our infamous emergency, when then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi suspended democracy for 21 months after she lost an election. That is when the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act was first introduced with the stated intent of preventing foreign influence in politics. 45 years later, political parties have very cleverly legislated themselves out of the purview of that act and turned it instead into a powerful weapon against civil society organizations. In fact, in a very bitter twist, the government in 2018 created a new instrument, entirely opaque, an electoral bond, it's called, that actually permits unlimited, completely anonymous political contributions. Between their introduction in 2018 and July this year, an estimated rupees 7,900 crores, that's just under 1 billion US dollars, has made its way to political parties in this entirely anonymous, unaccountable form. When data were last available, 76% of the bonds sold went to the ruling Bharatiya Janata Party or BJP, and the bonds accounted for 60% of that party's total reported fundraising. This is just one step in this trend of hollowing out democratic institutions, which as I said, was initiated in the mid seventies and, and started to accelerate in the early 1990s when uh, our economy was sought to be liberalized. That was when a buoyant triumphalist business sector seized the high ground in public perceptions and in policy influence, feeding this narrative of private sector good, everything else slow, inefficient, ineffective. The UPA government led by the Congress party that ushered in that phase of economic reform was actually quite deeply divided in its views of civil society. The faction led by Sonia Gandhi, the then Congress party president, was actually quite receptive to policy input from civil society actors. And this in fact was what led to that wave of legislation that gave us the right to education, the right to information, the right to food and the right to work. The beginnings in India of a rudimentary system of social protection. The more technocratic function led by then Prime Minister Manohan Singh saw NGOs as obstacles to their neoliberal economic model, which favored privatization and globalization. So large projects that were 
for example, promoting extractive industries or nuclear power, where local communities were being um, evicted and adversely affected in multiple ways, became flashpoints for conflict between state and business on the one hand and civil society groups on the other. And the bogey of the foreign hand was resurrected, notably by Dr. Singh in 2012. When the Modi government took office in 2014, the trend escalated sharply. First in the crosshairs were activists who had sought justice for the victims of the 2002 pogrom in Gujarat that killed over a thousand people, mostly Muslims. Mr. Modi had been the chief minister of the state when this happened. What happened with that targeting of activists is a pattern that is now standard operating practice. Frontline activists, people like Tista Sethalwad of the NGO Citizens for Justice and Peace, uh, who was successful in, I think she got 121 convictions uh, for perpetrators of the riots, including members of Mr. Modi's cabinet. Activists like Tista have had the full might of the state deployed against them. Multiple cases are filed, their passports are impounded, their FCRA permits and tax exemptions are withheld, their bank accounts are frozen, and a vicious campaign of vilification is launched against them, their families, and everyone who supports them. When these instruments aren't successful, the government goes after their support system. Their funders, in this case, the Ford Foundation, their lawyers, and anyone else who's trying to extend them support then become subject to harassment, intimidation, even prosecution. What these actions do is send a broad message, a clear, chilling message to everyone of the possible consequences of that kind of activism or even trying to support those activists. When the center Iran CSIP studied the impact of the FCRA crackdown in 2017, none of the funders we interviewed were even willing to be quoted in the report. A lot has been said about FCRA and most of the media attention has actually focused on international organizations like Greenpeace and Amnesty who have challenged the government's actions in court. Indian organizations who adopt that approach, like Insaf and Navsarjan and People's Watch, actually suffer much harsher consequences, even when they win their long drawn out legal battles, as all of them do. They become pariahs to the funding community. They see their organizations reduced to the bare bones, if not entire, rendered entirely defunct. But even more worse, even more even worse, what am I saying? Even more severely affected are the faith-centric organizations who choose mo mostly to just go quietly, leaving hundreds of thousands of Indians bereft of basic services in healthcare, in education, in livelihoods and the like. The targeting of some European donors, for example, has decimated the NGOs that work with LGBTQ communities. Those NGOs, of course, get very little support from Indian funders. And beyond the FCRA, there are draconian laws like on sedition, on terrorism, which are now routinely deployed against all forms of dissent. Some of you may have heard of the Bhima Kuregaon 16, who have now been imprisoned without bail for two and a half years. One of them, the 84-year-old Jesuit priest, Father Stan Swami, died a few months ago, shortly after he was finally granted bail to be hospitalized for COVID. Other laws, such as the National Security Act, the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, and Section 124A of the Indian Penal Code, permit practically indefinite incarceration without ever being brought to trial. These laws have now been used against students, against journalists, against stand-up comedians, against academics and others for actions such as these, for celebrating the victory of the Pakistani cricket team against the Indian team in the recent T20 World Cup, for sharing jokes and memes on social media, for participating in peaceful protests, for journalists who are seeking to investigate violence against minority communities, 
or for those who have tried to question the official COVID statistics. In a whole other realm of uh, assault on democracy, religious fanatics or those who are exploiting religious sentiment for political gain now routinely attack members of minority religions, their places of worship, and their businesses. In recent weeks, we've had calls for economic boycotts of Muslim businesses that have grown in both their frequency and their stridency. We have customers of rideshare apps and food delivery services who refuse to accept Muslim drivers or delivery people. Four states, all with BJP governments, have passed so-called anti-love jihad laws. Three other states have announced their intention to pass similar laws. What these laws posit is that there's an organized conspiracy of Muslim men luring Hindu women into marriage with the intent to convert them to Islam. This is what they call love jihad. Love Jihad is only one example of how the language itself is being weaponized. That this, you can hear this everywhere you go from ordinary people. Hindus are in danger. Go to Pakistan if you protest because, you know, if you don't like how things are here, maybe you'll prefer things there. Journalists are called prostitutes. NGO activists are called anti-national. Our prime minister prefers the term five-star activist. Many of us are referred to as urban Naxals, where Naxal refers to members of a violent Maoist movement. Tukre, Tukre gang, which in Hindi is suggests that you are working to break up the country. And termites are just some of the epithets that are thrown around to otherize minorities, refugees, and dissenters of all kinds. What this does, of course, is legitimize violence against them. In today's India, you can be beaten to death on a public thoroughfare for refusing to chant a Hindu slogan. You can be beaten to death anyway after you agree to chant that slogan. Mobs, offline and online, are determining what movies can be made, what books can be published, what food can be sold and where, what TV commercials are aired, indeed, what models in TV commercials may wear or not wear. It is no longer feasible even in philanthropy for grant applications to include words like human rights or governance or even the word accountability I found recently. On the legal front, the withdrawal of Article 370, which accorded special status at independence to Jammu and Kashmir, which happens to be India's only Muslim majority state, uh, the Citizenship Amendment Act, which is a law that discriminates among refugees based on their religion. The law that seeks to create a new national register of citizens that threatens to strip millions of their citizenship. Laws against religious conversion, laws that legislate food consumption, laws that seek to prevent interreligious marriage are all feeding this resurgent majoritarian nationalism that is in complete contrast to the constitutional values that we are meant to celebrate today. Enabling these grave miscarriages of justice is a range of deeply compromised judicial and law enforcement institutions. In Mumbai, where I live, for the last couple of months, a game of political cat and mouse has been playing out in which law enforcement agencies are being used to settle political scores. Our erstwhile commissioner of police was, till yesterday, a fugitive from the law. The erstwhile home minister, whom the commissioner had accused of corruption and extortion, is in prison. Officers at the Narcotics Control Bureau are being investigated for alleged extortion based on accusations by another minister. Across the country, tax authorities, intelligence bureaus, and criminal investigating agencies are now being routinely pressed into action against journalists, activists, NGOs, and academics whose activities the national or the state government uh, finds discomforting. The erstwhile Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was accused of sexual harassment by a member of his staff. 
This gentleman then presided over the inquiry into the allegations against him, an inquiry that, by the by, exonerated him of wrongdoing. This is the sort of farce that is tainting and discrediting not only him, but the entire judicial establishment, especially because his judgments then go on to overwhelmingly favor the government and he gets nominated to the upper house of parliament when he retires from the bench. On the other hand, bureaucrats, judges, police people who fail to comply with the government's expectations are summarily transferred to undesirable jobs or locations. Universities too are sought to be bludgeoned into silence. Textbooks are being rewritten to magnify the accomplishments of some communities and erase others. And media houses are either rewarded or targeted based on their willingness to toe the line. So these legal and extra legal measures are combined with harassment, intimidation, routine threats of rape and the like by armies of trolls, again, offline and online, resulting in the worst cases in assassination of journalists, of rationalists, and allegedly even of judges. On top of this came COVID-19. And you just saw those scenes, migrant workers walking hundreds of kilometers, desperately trying to reach their homes and families, reduced to penury overnight by this draconian lockdown that was announced at less than four hours notice. Chronically under-resourced public health and social protection systems that buckled under the strain of the numbers, everything from food and oxygen to ICU beds, healthcare staff, protective equipment, even crematoria and cemeteries in dire short supply. The role that India's nonprofit sector and its citizens played in alleviating this distress and saving countless lives by providing critically needed healthcare, livelihood support, as well as by just shining a light on the plight of the most marginalized groups has of course been universally recognized, including by senior figures in this government. So this piece, the nonprofit sector stepping up may not have been very different from occurrences in other countries where civil society found itself having to compensate for gross inadequacies in public health systems or for inadequate social safety nets. What was unique in India, however, was the total exclusion of the nonprofit sector from any of the official relief packages, which were meager enough, which the government offered to industry, to small scale enterprises and to other sectors to help them tide over the crisis. At a time, for instance, when countries from Canada, the USA and the UK, two countries like China and Russia were extending support to NGOs by way of increased tax incentives, for philanthropy or job protection schemes for their staff, India's nonprofits instead found themselves competing with our prime minister who launched a brand new fund called the Prime Minister's Citizen Assistance and Relief in Emergency Situations or PM Cares Fund, which offered a higher tax write-off than NGOs are permitted to offer. It permits business to meet the compliance requirements under India's CSR law and it provided unlimited access to international funds, besides, of course, dangling the possibility of earning goodwill uh, with the powers that be. It was not clear at all why this fund was even necessary, given that there was already a perfectly functional Prime Minister's National Relief Fund and Chief Minister's Relief Funds in most states. Furthermore, this fund is like Schrodinger's cat a little bit. It's, it's fuzzy. When it needs to attract contributions, it has all the trappings of an official government entity. But somehow, when it comes to access to underwrite to information laws or mandatory audits that are required of government funds by the Auditor General, somehow this fund morphs and becomes an NGO. In another piece of the COVID story, as Indians were dying in their hundreds for lack of oxygen, there were plane loads of, of ventilators and oxygen concentrators that were ready to fly these into India from overseas. Even in that situation, our government refused to relax the provisions of the FCRA, a practice that has actually been quite commonplace in previous national disasters. 
Then, as if this was all not enough, the government chose this time to introduce new amendments to the FCRA. Amendments that further constrain access to international support, limit the uses to which such funds may be put, and present a host of other obstacles, including a requirement for some reason to route all these funds through one particular branch of the State Bank of India in New Delhi. It's mystifying because transfers by way of foreign, foreign direct investment to business amount to more than 16 times the amount of money that NGOs receive from overseas donors. Those FDI flows, just as susceptible to misuse one would imagine, attract no similar hurdles, no scrutiny, and can be banked in any bank anywhere in India. In another thing that's noticeable about these particular amendments, they follow this new pattern where legislations are rushed through parliament, in this case in 72 hours, with neither prior consultation nor deliberation or scrutiny by members of parliament. The amendments were then approved by the president in three days and made effective instantly, throwing donors, NGOs, budgets, plans into complete disarray just at the time when all these resources, financial and human, were already stretched to their utmost. The International Commission of Jurists commenting on these amendments said, the legislation fails to comply with India's international legal obligation and constitutional provisions to respect and protect the rights to freedom of association, expression, and freedom of assembly. They stressed that the bill's provisions would impose arbitrary and extraordinary obstacles on the capacity of human rights defenders and other civil society actors to carry out their important work. They further warned that this hasty lawmaking clearly undermines human rights and the work of civil society and is yet another attempt by the government to destabilize the functioning of democratic institutions in India. The International Center for Not-for-Profit Law, on the other hand, observed the amendments are disproportionate and unwarranted restriction on Indian civil society, and they have only served to de debilitate the global, national, and local response to COVID-19. And as if this wasn't enough, at the same time, changes were made to the CSR rules requiring new registrations to qualify for funding, new renewal requirements for tax exemptions, which also went into effect at the height of the pandemic. And so NGOs were scrambling to somehow, during a lockdown, get signatures and affidavits and board resolutions and a plethora of other paperwork completed, even as they were trying to keep their staff safe, serve their community's surging needs, and deal with the consequences of donors redirecting their resources en masse from regular programs to COVID relief. It's worth noting here that these the parliamentary processes I just described are far from the exception. They are part of now a, an obvious trend towards bypassing both consultation and parliamentary scrutiny when legislation is being drafted. In 2014, just when this government came to power, a new policy was adopted called the pre-legislative consultation policy which mandates a host of things, including that whenever a law is made, a draft version of it must be placed in the public domain for at least 30 days. Since the inception of the policy, 227 of the 301 bills introduced in parliament have been presented without any prior consultation. Of the 74 that have been placed in public domain for comment, at least 40 did not adhere to the 30-day deadline. By comparison, the two terms of the UPA government that preceded this government, when this policy did not exist, saw 60% and 70% of the bills in the two terms discussed by parliamentary subcommittees. In this government, those percentages have dropped to 25% and 10%. One other thing that the pandemic threw into sharp relief were the inadequacies of India's philanthropy and civil society ecosystem. 
the lack of functional national associations of funders or of NGOs means that the sector has no voice in policy debate, no mechanisms to share information or to coordinate action, no means to push back against new regulations, or even in fact, to just get clarity about them. Similarly, the ecosystem lacks providers of services like research, recruitment, legal advice, financial advice, strategic advice, communication support, skill building, all of which go to hamper the sector's capacity to build scale, sustainability, and resilience. The new FCRA amendments pose additional hurdles for organizations that provide those kinds of services. What they do is they cap something they term administrative expenses to 20% of the value of FCRA grants. Expenses like program design, program management, even report production by a research organization is seen as an administrative cost, which makes it virtually impossible for these kinds of organizations to receive international grants. It's not helpful, of course, that tax incentives for domestic philanthropy have also been progressively whittled away under this government, leaving India with one of the most parsimonious regimes of tax incentives anywhere. You may not be surprised to learn that both Russia and China currently offer donors more generous tax incentives for philanthropy than India does. So this maze of legal and regulatory restrictions and the number of different agencies that have regulatory authority over the nonprofit sector means that NGOs of all kinds find themselves mired constantly in these complex, onerous, and often contradictory compliance requirements. Of course, none of these regulatory authorities is required to explain their arbitrary actions, and there is little, if any, redress or appeal available. Given then the severe consequences of any alleged breach of these rules, it's not surprising that we've been reduced as a sector to one that paints well within the lines, rather than risk potential consequences. For example, in 2020, the Supreme Court clearly ruled that just participating in a protest does not make your organization an organization of a political nature. Those kinds of organizations are not allowed to receive FCRA funds. Despite the Supreme Court ruling, the overwhelming majority of NGOs and funders, more importantly, have chosen to steer clear of any activity that might have the remotest possibility of attracting adverse attention. You don't even have to violate an actual law to attract this kind of attention. The police is increasingly prone to ignoring judicial orders and has been reprimanded multiple times by the courts for doing so. It continues to charge citizens with provisions of the law that do not apply. So for example, with the infamous section 66A of the Information Technology Act, which has clearly been ruled out of existence by the courts, continues to be applied to attract random charges of sedition, waging war against the state, causing offense to groups of people and portraying authorities or the country itself in a poor light. And actions that like these that limit freedoms of expression, association and assembly online now mirror those that restrict them offline. We have as, as a country, the world record for extended internet shutdowns, especially, but not limited to Kashmir. We now shut down the internet when school exams are on to prevent children from cheating in exams, apparently. There is continuous legal and extra legal pressure on social media organizations to censor posts and to censor posters. And of course, now the new revelations about the alleged use of the Pegasus software for illegal surveillance or to plant evidence on activist devices or both is one of the more egregious instances of this phenomenon. As we speak, data protection, intermediary liability and the ever-growing reach of our biometric identification system, Aadhaar, continue to be battled in court in a game of what can best be described as legal whack-a-mole with the authorities. They 
they, 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 they promulgate rules that exceed the legislation's purview. They are challenged in court. They lose that battle. They go five days later, there's a new rule that in some other way tests the boundaries of these legislations. The internet is particularly important in India because mass media ownership here is concentrated among a few big business people, not unlike other countries. And the airways and airwaves and broadsheets are dominated by very strident, very loud cheerleaders of the government. In this context, the internet provides almost the only somewhat free space. So these attempts to regulate and censor it are particularly ominous. But corporate media are only one part of the growing encirclement of our society by corporate interests. For civil society, for example, you could be on the one hand trying to combat powerful businesses, often allied with the government, where you're, where you're trying to defend the environment or human rights. But simultaneously, you're confronted with a funding landscape in which funding from business is the main source of philanthropic support because international funding is choked off. Section 135 of the Companies Act is, which is popularly known, popularly known as the CSR law, is a policy unique to India. It requires all companies above a certain size to contribute 2% of their net profits to social impact causes. Its impact on philanthropy and civil society in India has been interesting. On the one hand, it's probably doubled the absolute volume of corporate philanthropy. On the other hand, the law is designed to prioritize short-term, easy-to-measure, employee-pleasing programs over the more long-term, more complex, harder-to-measure, less photogenic causes. Another thing it did, interestingly, was shift agency, repositioning the corporate donor as the main protagonist and the NGO now as a mere implementing agency. Critically, of course, it is now created a significant disincentive for any NGO to be perceived as critical of business in any way. One other effect it has had is to accelerate and amplify this preference for business people on NGO boards and in leadership positions in NGOs. So you now have this market orientation pervading all aspects of NGO functioning from the kind of intervention. So we're seeing a preference, for example, for technology-driven programs in education, as opposed to ensuring the right to free public education. We're seeing a preference for microcredit and other forms of financial inclusion, rather than dealing with entrenched caste and gender discrimination. We're seeing a focus on low-cost service delivery programs, rather than on the defense and promotion of rights. Fear, or the possibility of favor, also means that CSR funds follow the prime minister's current whims. So one year we're all building toilets, another year we're funding the building of the world's largest statue, and who knows what's next. Finally, just prior to the introduction of the CSR law in 2013, India was witnessing a groundswell of debate around business responsibility for human rights, around environmental standards, even went as far as quotas for socially marginalized groups in the private sector. All of these have not so mysteriously fallen silent since the introduction of the CSR law. We're now proposing a new social stock exchange, which will define social impact even more narrowly and superficially than the CSR law does. So this large-scale corporatization of mindsets really cleaves the sector in two. There are good NGOs who are welcome in public-private partnerships, and then there are the black sheep who must be eliminated by any means necessary. It's interesting as a contrast that while laws and policies that govern the private sector have been thoroughly reformed over the past two decades, with a particular focus on improving India's ranking in the ease of doing business uh, scores of the World Bank, no similar action has been taken to rationalize or simplify the regulatory frameworks for civil society, despite multiple task forces being constituted and multiple policy documents being drafted. CSIP itself was commissioned by the National Policy Think Tank to review all policies that affect civil society and to propose self-regulatory mechanisms. 
Our reports were much appreciated and applauded, but the only changes in policy that we've seen actually work in the polar opposite direction to the ones we recommended. India, as you know, has very large development and social challenges to address. We have squandered too many years of rapid economic growth without making the investments in education, in healthcare, in social protection that might have helped to reduce hunger, illiteracy, discrimination, exploitation, inequality, and the impact of the climate crisis. Those investments could also have helped us minimize the impact of COVID-19, and they could have encouraged sustainable growth after the pandemic. The pandemic itself presents new opportunities for a reset to give us, it, it's opened up the policy space, if you will, to make those investments in radical new policies in public health, in education, in urban development, in public housing, in labor rights, in environmental protection, and a range of other areas. Instead of making those investments, India is sliding quite rapidly down a slippery slope into majoritarian authoritarianism authoritarianism, with the key institutions of democracy hobbled, stifled, and co-opted. Each day brings news of more activists detained, more NGOs in distress, more impunity for crimes against minorities, more politicians inciting violence, more victims of violence being prosecuted, more dire prospects for equality before the law, and more assaults on rights and freedoms. It's only the courage of a few activists, a few NGOs, a few grassroots groups, some journalists, and the occasional judge who chooses to uphold the constitution, plus everyday acts of bravery and compassion by our fellow citizens that are currently holding our democracy in some stead. These individuals and organizations need every bit of support that we can find in ourselves to provide. So I ask myself almost daily, is the scenario one of unremitting bleakness? Can this slide be reversed or at least slowed? What needs to change? And I think there are three areas that must be addressed urgently. One, the regulatory framework that governs civil society in India need urgent and comprehensive reform. Regulations need to be rationalized, simplified, and made coherent. They need to be made fully compliant with both India's constitution and the international treaties to which we are signatories. They need to clearly recognize the entire range of services and roles played by the nonprofit sector, from service delivery to business watchdog, to government and media watchdog, to innovation incubator, to developer and upholder of norms, to advocate capacity builder and champions of citizens and citizenship. We need a system also of self-regulation with an independent regulatory body that could deregister, register, build capacity, disseminate information, report on the sector, and be charged with strengthening the sector as a whole. We have a model in use in our microfinance sector, which could be a template. And of course, models of charity regulators in other countries also offer useful templates. Second, these anachronistic draconian laws that muzzle free expression, assembly, and association must be repealed or read down through judicial action. Further, the freedoms that are protected in the physical world must clearly be equally protected in electronic media and on the internet. Third, Governments in the states and at the national level must be held accountable for ensuring that participatory governance mechanisms and human rights watchdogs are fully staffed, fully funded, transparent, and independent. That's a pipe dream, you might tell me. Gaining traction on any of those will require a critical mass of Indian civil society organizations to coalesce despite our many differences, around an agenda of building sector solidarity, reshaping the public narrative and the regulatory context. Indian philanthropy too has critical choices to make with regard to its priorities. Will it be co content to play the role of enabling and legitimizing this erosion of core democratic principles, or will it make common cause with the defenders of constitutional values? Thank you. Thank you. That was fantastic. And um, I think we need an album of Indian covers of revolutionary hits um, sometimes. So maybe David, who's a bit of a musician, can, uh, can put it together. That'd be very good. 
Um, that was a, a superb overview. It's had us far about whether we can start thinking about working papers and things, because uh, it was such a good introduction to the, an overview of the current situation, uh, though deeply depressing, uh, as you say. Um, I'm now going to hand over to David. David, 10 minutes or so. Uh, you can take a bit more if you want. No, I'll try and stick to 10 minutes. Thank you. Thanks, Duncan. And yes, it was very good. So thank you very much, Ingrid, for an incredibly informative and comprehensive sweeping presentation. And there's so much food for thought there. Unfortunately, rather a depressing picture. And, you know, so much so I hardly know where to start. I mean, it's an alarming account of India as a backsliding democracy. And I think we've been witnessing this now for several years, but I think the way that more recently the pandemic has provided cover for a series of further and intensifying democratic violations and a, and a bypassing of civil society is really troubling. I mean, it is of course part of a much wider picture in which governments around the world have been reining in the politically inconvenient civil society sector through a range of now familiar mechanisms, but I think it's really striking that you can draw our attention to the fact that Russia and China actually offer more incentives um, and perhaps more space to NGOs. Um, and with, and with the, you know, the historical roots that you talked to us about notwithstanding, it also feels to me as, a, as an outsider only only slightly familiar with India. It, 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 I mean, it really feels like a dramatic break with the recent civil society past. And, you know, without wanting to paint an excessively rosy picture of that past civil society landscape, I think it, it has always been one that's seemed quite impressive to outside observers anyway. I mean, certainly in the small amount of work that I've done in, you know, in past decades, um, you know, where there's a civil society sector with the influences of Gandhian philosophy and activism and strong traditions of local volunteerism and long-standing productive relationships between international NGOs and Indian NGOs and local Indian NGOs as well. Um, you know, there was a, there was a whole lot of things going on around service provision, around advocacy, around innovation. Um, there, was a, there, was a, there was a piece um, that I read a few years ago by Apurva Oza of AKRSP, the Aga Khan Rural Support Programme, where he talks really interestingly about um, the, the influence of civil society on on government policy. Um, he said almost any government program worth its salt came from an innovation in civil society. And he draws attention to the National Rural Livelihoods Mission and the influence of Myrada in the past and self-help groups, the Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme that was lobbied for by civil society, integrated water management program, watershed management. There's a huge, there's a huge history of this stuff. And then in the campaigning field, there's the, you know, the, uh, the Narmada Dam campaign over so many years that was an internationally known and, of course, locally important example. Um, and the right to information movement that you mentioned that's sort of spread to other countries in the region and, and also beyond. So, you know, how we've gone from that into this situation where it seems that civil society organizations can neither be critical of government nor of business. It's, the, it's almost the antithesis of what advocates of civil society call for. Um, and I think there are some, some lessons for us more widely. I mean, I was particularly struck by your arguments about the corporatization of civil society um, that's effectively turned areas of it into an area, well, into a sort of depoliticized, marketized activity under the guise of CSR. And I think that's a very clear warning for those of us who see CSR as a, you know, as something that can be transformative. Um, so, um, 
I've got a few questions that I'd I'd love to open up um, and um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I mean, one of them is the, the fact that you've given a, an incredible overview of what's happening, but obviously India is a very big country. And I wonder if there are regional differences that you could that you could comment on where perhaps there is a more well there's more of a you know more rays of hope um i mean inevitably one thinks about sort of kerala and parts of other parts of south india where there may be different uh, political opportunity structures in terms of the openness of political arrangements or the stability of elite alliances or the presence of you know, of elite allies with involvements in civil society. So that was one, that was one question about um, locality and, and regions. Um, I mean, on the farmer protests, I wanted to ask again, because I, I don't know uh, too much about it. And I wanted to, to ask you, you know, how much you feel we can read into these protests and the success that they've had in pushing back government policy, um, you know, I mean, how much of it was about um, regional sort of landowner elites and large farmers, you know, defending interests, um, or are they, uh, you know, a source of hope in that these are these can also be seen as bottom-up, multi-class movements that have, you know indisputably been been effective in challenging marketization so i'd love to know a little bit more about that i mean i was interested to to know a little bit more about climate and environmental activism and in, and in particular whether there are some generational areas or aspects of of hope really where maybe younger younger people challenging the status quo or opening up the possibility of recreating or rebuilding a sense of civil society and reshaping uh, the narrative. Um, another question I think was that I'm interested in is, is links between civil society and state. Um, are there, you know, one of the things that we sometimes that we sometimes look to civil society for is, is as a kind of sort of political training ground, a kind of, you know, habits of democracy argument. And I wondered whether there is any, anything there around individuals who move between government and civil society, whether there are allies within this government who, who see civil society in more positive ways, or you know, perhaps locally, if not nationally. And then finally, because uh, I've given you an awful lot of questions to think about, you know, do we need, and this is the big one, I suppose, I mean, do we need to rethink the assumptions that we have about civil society as an idea and as a vehicle for change? I mean, there's been an awful lot of, of discussion and some would say naivety about this, very difficult concept or bundle of concepts really, as, as we talked about in um, uh, on our core course last week, actually, you know, different versions of, or, or, or you know, different ways of thinking about civil society. You know, have we been naive about civil society? So, yeah, thank you, thank you, David. Sorry. Do you want to just come back on him? Over to you, Ingrid. Thank you, David. Thank you, Duncan. So if I can sort of take those questions in the sequence uh, that you, well, before I go there, I think, so, you know, a lot of these laws are not new, even though some of them have been amended and, and a lot of these policies or even these tactics are not new. It's not as if the previous, uh, previous governments have, you know, not adopted some of these same approaches. I think what has changed and this is what make, makes it different. This is something you may relate to as well in your part of the world, which is there's a level of brazenness, a level of ruthlessness uh, that has never been on display before. So there's a willingness to 
you know, not just by an election, but by an election publicly and visibly, you know, without any shame or any attempt even to conceal what you're doing. And the second thing I think that's different about this time is how the majority community has been weaponized as a weapon of politics. Um, I, do, I don't know whether you have anything, you certainly do with Brexit, but there's a, a, a way that those divides have been uh, yeah, capitalized on to really become uh, political instruments. So then coming to your questions, are there regional differences? Certainly there are. Uh, if you look at even during COVID, for example, the way Kerala reacted and their, and their uh, approach was very different from the way other states reacted. Sadly, um, they haven't actually been able to control um, the spread of the pandemic as well as one hoped they would. But what they did do was minimize its impact. So everything from you know, children who could no longer go to school were actually getting midday meals home delivered. Um, and there was uh, telephonic and online uh, counseling available to people uh, who were suffering from mental health issues and so on. So even when they weren't able to control the pandemic necessarily, policies like that, where there was strong partnerships between, and this was only possible because of the strength and width of the partnerships between government and civil society in Kerala. Uh, there are networks of women, for example, uh, who are literally operate in every village uh, in Kerala, who then became delivery mechanisms uh, for some of these, these interventions. Um, in other parts of the country, yes, there are differences, but the differences are inconsistent. So the same chief minister who's an ally on one issue uh, would be an adversary on another. Um, and it depends really on which constituency is speaking. So the farmers have particular clout in Punjab and Haryana, whereas Muslims have particular clout in Uttar Pradesh because they represent a significant chunk of the electorate there and so on. So it really depends on, on how the politics can be sliced and diced uh, that determines uh, how bad or how good things are. Um, on the farm laws themselves, I don't know whether I'm qualified to speak to the merits of the laws themselves. I certainly haven't studied them with any degree of, of rigor. Um, but what I can say is two things. One is they're an object lesson in how not to legislate. Uh, they were first promulgated as an ordinance, even, you know, even though parliament was about to meet, and then they were sort of pushed through parliament, shoved through parliament with no debate, no scrutiny and so on. And so even people who might have been allies of the government on this were uh, put off by the fact that basic democratic principles had been violated and they wanted to know why the government was you know, acting so precipitately. Um, the, the other thing to note is that the, la the farm laws are only the most visible such U-turn. Uh, Early in the government's tenure, they tried to pass a land acquisition law, which would allow the government to, you know, through eminent domain, acquire people's land. Um, that law was passed, but never implemented. Uh, they then passed this Citizenship Amendment Act uh, a couple of years ago, which at the start of the pandemic, which was supposed to differentiate between refugees based on their religion, never implemented. So not formally repealed, but just put into cold storage. The same with the National Register of Citizens. They've been threatening this, this new National Register of Citizens now for a couple of years. They launched a sort of pilot project in Assam, which didn't yield the results they wanted because I can't remember now, 190 Hindu, 190 million, no, not 100, 90 million Hindus ended up trapped in this law, which was not their intent. And so that's been put into abeyance. And similarly, new labor laws and so on. So this government has actually conceded defeat a, new, a number of times in its legislative agenda. This is simply a very visible and very public defeat. And so it has a very different effect. Um, it emboldens other movements. It kind of shows the way uh, for what works and what doesn't. It, it, you know, effectively the government has said to people, if you can block the highways coming into Delhi for 11 and a half months, 
uh, we will be left with very little choice but to concede your demands, which is not necessarily the best thing, the best message you want uh, as civil society, uh, but it's certainly going to have some consequences. On the climate question and do different generations see this differently? Yes, uh, broadly. Uh, younger people are more engaged on uh, climate and environmental issues. But what supersedes that engagement or that interest is this majoritarian nationalism. So regardless of your age, if you are a supporter of this Hindutva model of governance, then you're going to support the prime minister and this government on all their policies. You will you will contort yourself into ridiculous shapes to try and, in fact, make sense of. Um, for example, with the, with the repeal of the farm laws, right? There were these news anchors and journalists and, and young people and who had been crying themselves hoarse about how the farm laws were the best thing that had ever happened. And then the prime minister does this U-turn and they suddenly have to find a way now of supporting the prime minister's new position without actually going back on everything they said. So the, the, the this identity thing is superseding, um, superseding what issues I might actually feel deeply about. Somebody I think likened it to supporting a, a sports team, you know, which is it doesn't matter whether they win or lose, you're still a Man United or a Arsenal or an Indian cricket team or a Mumbai Indian fan. And so you have to support them. Um, on the question of links between civil society and state, there's not, there's certainly a, a an on-ramp, if you will, into politics from civil society. So you quite often have, I mean, the people who've sort of uh, gotten into politics through student politics, through trade unions, through uh, cooperative movements of various kinds, through, in fact, previous governments have been very successful in co-opting movements by in effect drawing them into politics. So the students movement in the Northeast, for example, which was one of the most ferocious uh, anti-government movements that we had seen and, and, and pretty violent too, was sort of persuaded in a sense or lured into becoming a political party at which point they were completely uh, neutralized. Um, and there certainly are allies in certainly in the bureaucracy uh, and I'm sure uh, in, in the parties as well. Um, yeah, but but nobody at this point in time, nobody is sort of publicly uh, defensive society, or, or very few people will, um, and, and maybe those people don't count as much. Um, should we be rethinking the whole idea of civil society? Probably. Uh, I mean, we've, you know, for, for the longest time, I think people have talked about this idea of uncivil society. Uh, and, and how not all civil society is sort of created equal and has the same laudable goals. Uh, but, and, and then, of course, as soon as you decide to prescribe what's a laudable goal and what's not, uh, you sort of violate the basic tenets of what civil society is and how it should be. So it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like censorship, uh, you know, which is even when it's done in a good cause, uh, it probably has worse long-term effects uh, than the problem it is trying to cure. So I will stop there. Right. I should have said at the beginning an extra thanks to Ingrid because she's doing this at 10.30 at night or something very uncivilized. Uh, David, uh, Ingrid, that was a fantastic session, real tour de force. Honor to have you on this series. I'm going to have to go ahead and rewrite my course materials, unfortunately, now for my course on activism. It is littered with positive case studies of fantastic achievements in, in India, which I won't take out, but I'm going to have to at least make the students listen to the podcast of you and uh, of you two discussing this because it is a massive corrective to, uh, I think, we got a little bit overexcited or uh, uh, uncritical about what's going on. It also, for me, raised really profound questions about whether we've become too simplistic in this idea of there is state and there is civil society and power is much more dispersed than that. And we need to go back to thinking, how do people come together to exert agency? It's not always through CSOs. And that's what we're seeing through a lot of the COVID experiences in many other countries. Anyway, this, this could go on all night, but uh, we cannot. So thank you very much for coming. Uh, for those uh, who have hung on to this point, come back next week for a discussion with Tehas Clark and Musharraf Hussain on 
uh, a COVID and disability. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.